How are you doing? Welcome to the Light Gate. We are coming to you live from the beautiful city of New Orleans in Louisiana at the United Public Radio Network at 105.3 and I mean 107.7 FM and the UFO Paranormal Radio Network at 105.3 FM. We are on Roku, we are on YouTube, we're on Facebook and many, many other uh applications. Those of you who only have radio, every time we describe something or we show a picture, we will give as much of a description so that you're right along there with us, riding along. We have an awesome guest who's returning to finish talking and telling what he has to say. Go, Preston. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Dolly. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on episode 31 of The Light Gate. So we're moving along. It's amazing. I, of course, am Preston Dennett author and researcher and experiencer. And joining me tonight is my lovely co-host, Dolly Safran, experiencer and subject of the book, Symmetry. And yeah, we do have an exciting guest and I will get right to him because he's got so much to share tonight and it's gonna be all new, even though he is a returning guest. But first, let me say hi to you guys in chat because we love you so much that you come each week to join us here on the Lightgate. And we are super thankful. So a huge shout out to all of you guys because it is awesome that you are joining us. And I just wanna thank you all for that. And let me see, who do we have here tonight? We have Brian Morgan. Thanks for joining us. Rat Food. Oh, I love this comment that you put up. Oh, Dolly, you're taking over my comments. I'm sorry. I'm trying to put up Rat Food. Because <laughs> I'm really hyped up. It feels like forever yeah. since the last light gate. But yeah, we are super thankful for the guys who are, all of you who are donating with Super Chat. Uh, it means a lot makes a big difference. So thank you. Thank you so much. Um, Hello to Mark Z. Hammer. This is going to be an off the hook episode. You know it. Boy, is it ever. Wait till you see. And who else do we have here? Dana Matthews. Hope you're all having a good start to the week. I am. I know Dolly is and I hope you are too, Dana. And who else do we have here? Neural Channels. This is gonna be a great one. Yes, it is. And Janice Connett, hello, Janice. Robert Allen Yaffe, yes, we are here, Robert. Thanks for joining us. Okay, who else do we got here? Dun, 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 dun. Mr. B's Truth Seeker, Louise, thanks for joining us. Ah, Susan Alloway, former guest and all-around amazing person. And who else do we got going on? Kayleen White, all the way from Australia. Said it before, but I'll say it again. I love how this subject brings people together from all over the world. Fun Talks TV, yay. Thank you for joining us. Mark's Shed Talk. Renee Cuse. Ah, Martin Rivera, who has been a guest twice on the show. Hello, Martin. Hope you're doing well. Got a referral to you. We just had a guest named Tony on last week who might be able to connect with you. I need to, he's 
had some amazing experiences, but doesn't fully remember all of them. So Ruth Kleiber, hello. Hope you're doing well. Terry D and CT Guitar Guy. Yes, we are both doing well. Hope you are too. Hello, Jeffrey. Thanks for joining us. Alicia, this is awesome. Um, who else do we got going on here? HS and all you guys who are donating with Super Chat, I want to give you another special shout out because, as I said, it does mean a lot. Your generosity is truly appreciated. Our, we do have expenses you might not think of during, for this show, so it really helps and helps us to bring you this show and a higher production value on my own YouTube channel and all the stuff that we do. So thank you, thank you, thank you. But all right, let's get right to the show tonight because we do have an amazing guest. His name is Michael Schratt, and he was actually a former guest on episode three. And as it turns out, our most popular guest of all our shows uh, he's gotten the most views, and he didn't get to finish. <laughs> we had to cut him off pretty much in the middle of his presentation, so he will be continuing it tonight. So we're not going to be going over old material or anything like that. This is going to be all new stuff. So for those of you who missed his first episode, it's still in archives. You can watch it in a number of different forms, uh, but you might want to check that out. Maybe not right this second because we're doing the show live, but when you get a chance. But yeah, no new material. So our guest is Michael Schratt. For those of you who haven't heard of him, he is a private pilot, a military aerospace historian, longtime UFO researcher, lecturer, draftsman, and an expert on classified black projects, UFO crash retrievals, a government UFO cover-up, and much more. He's the author of Dark Files, a pictorial history of lost, forgotten, and obscure UFO encounters. And if we have time, which I don't think we will, we might pick up a few pictures of that and present them, and he can talk about them. At any rate, Michael is a frequent guest on radio shows and podcasts. He's been on Coast to Coast, many other major podcasts, most of them, regularly speaks at UFO conferences, including recently Contact in the Desert. And about his book, Dark Files, it presents 61 fully illustrated UFO encounters from around the world, cases obtained from real-world boots-on-the-ground research by gaining access to university archives, multiple UFO research centers, and private collections. So Michael is really a researcher's researcher. All cases presented contain references so that the reader can verify them on their own. And every effort was taken to portray these cases accurately from eyewitness accounts and reports, thereby preserving an important part of our global history. So it contains never before seen illustrations, which make these historically significant UFO cases come alive. But tonight, Michael will be continuing his discussion of UFO crash retrieval events and our government's effort to reverse engineer extraterrestrial craft 
I think this is one of the cutting edges of UFO research, certainly one of the most controversial aspects, one of the most popular. I think it has the potential for the most pay dirt and the most movement in this field. Uh, this is how we are actively fighting this cover-up, which is definitely still in place. So it's not only interesting, it's important work that Michael Schratt is doing. So I'm super delighted and honored that he is joining us tonight. And let me just bring him to the stage. Hi, Michael. Hello, Preston and Dolly. Good to see you. To you see too. You. So I hope you're doing well tonight. Doing good. Doing good. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on short notice. We did have a cancellation. And Michael stepped in. And I'm super grateful because otherwise we'd probably be doing a Q&A. I don't know, but Michael saved our butts. So huge thank you, Michael. No problem. No problem. I truly appreciate it. But we did get to you in time, so we advertised this show. And lots of people are showing up, as you can tell, because chat's very busy. And we are ready to go, Michael, when you are. Okay, so I think I'm going to, let's see, I need to share my screen here. Let's see uh present share screen uh share okay share entire screen share let's see you can do the entire screen if you want to go for it oh uh, here Those we go okay so now i'm going to go here and slideshow from beginning so do you see that Yes, we, we just have See to bring that. it onto the stage. So when okay. you're ready, we can bring it on, but I see it. Okay, so you see it full screen, right? Yep. Yep. Okay, good. All right, so I'm gonna I'm gonna start right here. And as you kind of mentioned, Preston, we definitely are gonna be covering new material. I don't wanna rehash all the old material, but I kind of like what you mentioned in the beginning intro there because the crash retrieval cases absolutely contain the most paid dirt we're going to get in this field because it's going to be the crash retrievals that move this field forward. It's going to be these cases that will break the cosmic cover-up. Uh, anything less than that, like I kind of said before, we're just spinning our wheels. So we, we have to drill down on these cases and get the body, the debris, and the craft put into the hands of the scientific community as a united coalition. That's how we're going to move forward here. So the first case here, this is Fort Riley, Kansas, December 10th, 1964. The source was a gentleman, first division. He served in the infantry. His name is Aaron Quebec. And I've got a 20-minute uh, audio tape of him describing this entire scene here. This is from UFO Crash Retrievals, page 24, abstract 20. So that's the reference of where I'm getting this information. Happened in Fort Riley, Kansas. And this is the map of Camp Forsyth, where this actually took place. So he wow. and a few other military police type, they go in this six by six troop transport. They go into this open field. This is all at night. They get out of the transport. They walk a half mile into a large open field at night, and what they see is this craft, 48 feet in diameter, 18 feet tall. It had a number of square sections that were jutting out from the outer circumference of the craft itself. Near the edge of the craft, there was what looked like a fin-type device, 
And then on the back or bottom section of the fin device, there was what looked like an exhaust port. I'm gonna move forward here. So now you can see this is the first past illustration that I created that gives you an idea of what this thing looked like. And so here's Rudy's drawing. When they got to the scene, there was a Huey UH-1 Bell helicopter that was crisscrossing this open field at night, shining a spotlight on this thing. It finally found out where the craft was. So that spotlight was directly, you know, pointed toward the craft itself. And he also mentioned that there were people with Geiger counters checking for radioactivity around the outer circumference of the craft itself. So we took everything from the Leonard Stringfield collection and we took Rudy's drawing here, and I commissioned my good friend Joel Payne, and we came up with, oh, this is from Joseph Wraith. Uh, we came up with this illustration here that shows you this Huey helicopter shining down. We've got some, uh, you know, suitor types here. We've got military police here. And this is what this craft may have looked like. We'll go to a second one here. This gives you a, a better idea of what this may have looked like. Now, this is a controversial case and the only reason why i bring it up is because we have secondary independent confirmation from another source who saw this craft on a m123 tank transporter and it was being moved up a hill and he was coming down the hill and he saw this craft on the back of the trailer so now we have two sources that this actually took place here's what it now, looks like not super common for these crash retrievals a lot of them do depend on one eyewitness testimony. So that is awesome. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's the whole point here is that we had someone else to confirm Aaron's uh, account of the, of the retrieval operation. So this gentleman is, is kind of going down the perimeter of the base while this M123 tank transporter is going up with the craft with a tarp on it. And he said that it had heavy chains covering the top of it. And he, he saw this whole thing. He was questioned. He was stopped. He was told to turn around, but he also mentioned that there were people with biological chemical hazard suits that were around the, the trailer of the vehicle itself. So this is a good case where we had at least two eyewitnesses that saw this. All right, we'll move on to the next one. Now, this is a bizarre case, and I would never bring it up, only for the fact that it is part of the Leonard Stringfield collection. I realize it's it's bizarre it's crazy it's unbelievable but it's part <laughs> of the book I, I put it in there anyway you know i just came back from here anyone can go here and you can stand plus or minus well they probably moved the display but you can stand where this actually happened so this is air force museum dayton ohio 1965 this is page 93 case a11 so picture yourself inside this museum and i'm going to take you inside right now Okay, Michael, and, I, just uh, wanna, I just want to say one thing real quick. We have some people who are listening who don't actually see the images. So if you could give a quick description like of each slide. Okay, so no what problem. we just saw was, you know, some yeah. hangers, basically. Yeah. And now we're looking yeah, at... So first slide is, is the hangers at, at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, uh, Dayton, Ohio. And then we're going to take you inside the hangar. And what we're describing here is a V2 rocket display. And you can go here tomorrow if you wanted to and see <laughs> this exact same rocket display where this all happened i mean it's historic i was here two weeks ago i was standing right here where this thing was so wow. picture there's a couple you know a couple is right next to this rocket display and for some strange reason we have no idea why 
some strange reason, the husband leaves his wife stranded at this V2 rocket display. And he goes wandering the back halls of the Air Force Museum. And he busts through a double door that said, you know, no entry. So he goes through this door. And when he walks through this doorway, he is met with the shock of his life. And he sees this. It's about a three and a half foot tall. You could call it a humanoid looking being. It was wearing a one piece tight fitting mercury you could call it a wrinkled aluminum chrome spacesuit it had a helmet oversized head oversized eyes slit for a mouth minute nose it was pointing its finger toward the primary eyewitness now on the upper hand drawing that rudy's done here the wife is still back at the rocket display and within 10 seconds of this gentleman encountering this being who apparently escaped from its underground container on the military base side of Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, all the buzzers and whistles and alarms started going off. And that's what we see on the on the lower right-hand cutaway view that Rudy's drawn, mm -hmm. kind of a detailed and large view. All of the MPs started ushering the people out of the Air Force Museum while all this is going on. So th this is wow. a bizarre case. It's part mm -hmm. of, of the Leonard Stringfield collection. So it appears that whatever this thing was, it escaped from an underground facility. It got into an underground tunnel that led to the Air Force Museum, believe it or not. But it's part of the story. So well, maybe it just here. appeared there. I mean, because an encounter can happen anywhere. And perhaps it appeared. In no, he's wearing, he's wearing military gear. To, it's like a he's describing a life suit. In other words, he's oh, breathing right. something inside that suit. And it looks like our stuff, not theirs at all. Yeah, it, so. it, it sounded in the report. It gave the impression that he was wearing a Mercury space suit right. from like 1959 era. That time <laughs> it was wrinkled. Wow. It looked like something, uh, you know, one of our Gordon Cooper would have worn. That's what right. it appeared to be. All right. So next one. Uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, 1966. Civil Service electrician, electrician, page 17, abstract 13. So this gentleman... He came home at night. He was wearing a trench coat. His son was there waiting for him to come home. And when he got in, he said, son, I got something I want to show you. So we're going to go to the next slide. And when he opened up his breast pocket of his trench coat, he pulled out an 8x10 glossy black and white photograph in portrait. And what it depicted were two men. So there was a gentleman on the left who was wearing a kind of a, a lab coat technician type suit. The other one had a military khakis with boots on, and they were both holding up a dead ET corpse by its wrists. And in the background, there was some rolling hills, and it looked like it was a uh, southwestern scene. Could be somewhere in Phoenix, Arizona, somewhere in New Mexico. We don't know for sure, but it was definitely somewhere in the southwest. And this being was wearing a, a one-piece tight-fitting flight suit that we've heard multiple times before. So they, they absolutely do have the bodies. They absolutely do have the craft. They do have the debris. So there can be no longer any question about not having anything, but it's questionable whether our politicians, our senators, our congressmen have a high enough security clearance where they can get access to this material. That's the problem we're running into. Now, the way I this- I most probably don't, but I'm sure some do. Yeah. Some, some do, but most don't. And so that's yeah. the problem we're running into. Now, when he got 
back to the uh, office or where he worked back at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base the next morning, they discovered that this photograph was missing and he was fired on the spot. So oh, wow. it's a risky move. You know, it's a risky move. The, the way this game is played is they don't care what you know. They care what you can prove. And this guy crossed the line. He actually took some proof out, showed it to his son, got in big trouble, was fired immediately. And so, you know, that's, again, what we're up against. They, they've got these photographs and they've got these in multiple locations around the country so that they don't have a single point failure. So somehow we've got to figure out a way to get access to these facilities and allow this material to be brought into the hands of the scientific community. That's what we want to do here. All right, next one. July 3rd, 1967, in the Southwest, the primary witness was a Marine. His rank was private first class, and uh, he was brought into this Southwest area, and they had a couple of, you could call them temporary Quonset-style prefabricated hangars. That's what he was told to guard. And by day three, according to the report, by day three, curiosity got the best of this gentleman. So he walked over to this hangar that he wasn't supposed to. And you can see him in the back of this drawing here that Rudy's done. He opened up the flap of this hangar and he looked inside. And when he looked inside, he saw many different things. Number one, there was a 30 foot diameter dish shaped craft with a dome on top resting on the bottom floor of this hangar. In front of this dish-shaped craft, there were multiple workstations or work tables, and they had like mechanical equipment, something that you'd see at Harbor Freight. They had calipers, micrometers, there were uh, microscopes there. They had teams of lab coat technicians there. And then off to the background in the right of this drawing that I'm describing here, there was a walk-in freezer and body bags next to the freezer. Now, he did not see any bodies but he definitely said that there were body bags there. So what we want to do now is we want to take everything from the details description within the Leonard Springfield book, Crash Retrievals, take this drawing and go to the full color illustration. And that's what we've done here by Mr. Joel Christopher Payne, just to make this thing come alive. What it would it look like if we were there, right? You can see we've got the body bags. We've got the cold storage walk-in freezer. The craft is kind of in the center of the back portion of this illustration and we've got these lab technicians and workstations and tables here so the, you know this is something that they've got experience with they it looks like when a crash occurs it's retrieved on the spot and they can bring in assets wherever they want if they need to do kind of a mobile examination on a number of these different crash retrievals next one well, this the budget is for all of this must be incredible to just hop yes, on top of it so quickly and that's why Toilet seat covers cost $300, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> All right, next one. Fort Hood, Texas, late 1960s. This is a private pilot. This is page 91 in the book. So I'm estimating that this is around 1968 time frame. Now, within Fort Hood, there's something called Robert Gray Army Airfield. And that's where this case actually took place. So this is somewhere around 1968. A private pilot had to make an emergency landing at Gray Army Airfield. And uh, as soon as he landed, now this is the drawing by Rudy based on the eyewitness testimony. As soon as he landed, a military jeep comes screaming up to his Cessna 172. 
the driver and the person in the passenger seat both pull out their 45 caliber pistols and are aiming it at the pilot. He's told to get out of the plane. His hands are up. Now, while all this is going on, there is a 400 foot wide by 400 foot long bypass door that opens up. Now, I'm going to repeat this. 400 foot wide by 400 foot long bypass door. It completely opens up, exposing an underground facility. Now, keep in mind, the texture on the top of this bypass door matched the surrounding landscape. So there were low bushes there. There were rocks. Uh, there were small trees there. So you would never know that there's an underground facility here or an underground runway because that's what this was. This was an underground runway. Now, when he looked inside, he said that off to the right, there was what looked like multiple banks of Cray computers. And then there were what looked like drones monitoring the inside of this facility. So if you extrapolate the data out of everything we've heard, and in the report it stated that there were multiple reports of UFOs coming from this facility that were being, quote unquote, escorted by military helicopters, specifically CH-47 Chinook double rotor helicopters escorting these UFOs. So it looks like this is an underground staging area for test flights of manned UFOs that have been reverse engineered for from probably authentic articles. Now, we've also heard throughout the years that a lot of these underground facilities are connected by high-speed tube shuttle systems. So we've got that in there. We've got the 1966 uh, Eddie Laxon case here. Later on, we've got Cash Landrum. This happened, of course, later, so that could definitely be a part of this. But what we want to do now, and th this is what this guy is describing. It's incredible. I love this case. We're going to go to the full color illustration here just in a minute. But I'm asking the question, is there a top secret underground facility located at Gray Army Airfield? It appears that there are because we've got multiple eyewitnesses of these things being escorted by our helicopters. So uh, I want to go to a couple of quick statements here. This is in the book, page 100. Tommy Blonde, he interviewed Colonel X, and this is described in the book here. This is what the colonel said. The colonel stated that underground installations, as well as isolated areas of military reservations, have squadrons of unmarked helicopters, which have sophisticated instrumentation on board that are dispatched to areas of UFO activity to monitor these craft or airlift them out of the area if one has malfunction. Hmm, where have we heard that before? Like Cash <laughs> Landerman. Okay, right. I know you know about this, Preston. <laughs> All right, next one. The technology that is being applied in this underground complex would remind someone of a science fiction thriller. It is unbelievable what they know and can do from this area. Hmm, interesting. That leaves a lot on the table here. What, what they could do is just incredible. Well, absolutely. Okay, so these are the Chinook helicopters. They've been seen escorting uh, UFOs. They're always connected to these UFO sightings. And so here we've got the Cash Landrum incident. This is December 29th, 1980, Hoffman, Texas. So we've got Betty Cash, we've got Vicki Landrum, we've got Colby Landrum. It's around 9 p.m. at night. And they were looking for a bingo tournament to go to. They went to two different halls and they, they couldn't find anything. So they said, you know what? We're going to drive back to Dayton, Texas. We're going to drop off Vicki. We're going to call it a night. 
So they're driving south on 1485. This is west of Dayton, Texas. And all of a sudden, Colby, who's in the back seat, looks off to the right. He sees a bright light. And he says, Betty, what's this? She's driving the car. And this light gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And all of a sudden, it's lighting up the entire area. I mean, it's unbelievable. All of a sudden, this light, it actually is much more than a light. It is a 90-foot tall double ice cream cone connected together by the thick ends. And that's what we're describing here. You can see this illustration. I'm going to describe it. This thing is 90 feet tall. It has what looked like a flat section where the two wide portions meet. And there was what looked like lighted portholes around this flat section that wrapped around the outer circumference of the craft itself. Now, while all this is going on, while the craft bobs down toward the asphalt, there's a roaring blue colored flame that's coming out the bottom of it. And every time the blue colored flame came out of the bottom, this thing would bob back up and it would repeat this thing. And then while this is going on, there's a beeping noise like it's a proximity indicator, another telltale sign of a man-made craft. Now, Betty decides to get out of the vehicle. Uh, Vicky and Colby also get out of the passenger side. So Colby is kind of between the vehicle itself and Vicky and then Betty walks forward toward the hood and she's watching all this. She slammed on the brakes and now they're only 150 feet in back of this craft itself. Uh, when Betty slammed on the brake, Vicky went forward and put her hand on the dashboard and her handprints melted into the dashboard and it's still there today. If this car could be found, <laughs> it would still have her imprint on there. Now, at this point, Betty is there for about a minute and a half to, to two to three minutes as she's watching all this. She decides to go back into the car. And remember, this is December 29th, 1980. It's cold outside. She reaches for the door handle of the vehicle and burns her hand. She has to take the leather portion of her coat and uplift the handle. She goes inside. It is boiling hot inside. They had to turn the air conditioner on. By this time, this craft moves away and then no less than 23 double rotor Chinook CH-47 helicopters come after this craft. We believe there's at least two UH-1 helicopters and one Sikorsky Sky Crane was also chasing after this craft. So not only do we have the three eyewitnesses, Betty Cash has passed, Vicki Landrum has passed, Colby Landrum is the sole surviving eyewitness. Now, if we have 23 helicopters and we have at least three crew members of each, and there's probably more, we're pushing 100 additional witnesses that could be called upon, which we need to find out and, and see which ones are still alive. It's been a long time now. Somehow we need to track down these CH-47 helicopters. Here's the Clarion Ledger Texans encounter sighting of UFO brought illness but few answers. Now, one thing that I want to point out is John Schusler was the primary researcher on this case. I mean, it it took up a whole portion of his whole life investigating this. And if you look at the road, he actually took a photograph of the burn mark. And according to John yeah. Schusler, after this event took place the Army Corps of Engineers came in and they dug up the road and they repaved it. And you know what happened next, Preston? 
<laughs> Tell me. Yeah. I think Do you have any might... idea what happened next? <laughs> Believe it or not, the Army Corps of Engineers dug it up a second time and repaved it a second time. I did not so know that. So I think that's bizarre. And this is even, this is the top of the whole thing. This is this is what really gets me. The Air Force tried to buy Betty Cash's car. Now, if there's nothing to this, why would the <laughs> Army of Engineers dig up the road twice and repave it twice? That's one thing. Number two, how did Vicki Landrum's handprints get embedded and melted into the dashboard? That's not going to happen if it's nothing to it. And number and number three is why would the Air Force care about Betty Cash's car if there's nothing to it? So it's yeah. it's obvious that they were trying to cover this up. It appears that this is a test flight of one of our birds that had an atomic reactor on board that had exactly. a breach on the yeah. side of the craft that was spewing out fissionable material that caused the radiation poisoning of these three witnesses. Yeah. That's what yeah. we're dealing with. And that's yep. what Linda Catlett is asking. Would the radiation cause them to feel sick? Yes. Yes. And they oh, did. absolutely. Yeah, she got yeah. cancer. Be before, yep. Before they even got home, they were already feeling the effects. So immediately they had stomach problems. They were vomiting. Uh, Betty's eyes swelled short. She lost her hair. Vicky lost hair. She had, uh, she had marks on her fingernails. Uh, all of them had effects of radiation poisoning. This, this is one of the top three cases in ufology, period. Always has been, always will be. Uh, yeah. this and is I will say, Michael, that yep. Timothy Good talked about a couple of cases where the same thing happened. They repaved the roads after a UFO they came down and burned them. Real UFOs. But this comes so, up in a number of yes. cases. I'm so glad you mentioned that. Yeah, they, they do it. They do it. So, you know, we can't say that there's nothing to this. We, we've got, there is physical evidence out there. My question is, is were, was the pilots, were the pilots wearing lead suits, right? Were they shielded? No. Were the CH-47 no. shielded? are probably dead already. Yeah. Very possible. They been, yes. they it would have killed them outright. Yep. It would have killed them. That's, that's very yes, possible. Sir. That's very possible. Yep. All right. So here's the full color illustration. Now, According to that colonel that we talked about before on a couple of slides, he said that there were CH uh, C-130 uh, Hercules cargo aircraft exiting and departing this facility. So what this is, it's an underground runway. It's an underground runway for massive cargo aircraft. Wow. You can put fighters into this thing. That's I mean, this is what our tax dollars are paying for right yep. under our noses, and we don't even know it. You yep. don't even know it. Yep. So this is Fort Hood, Texas, Gray Army Air Force. I was just going to say, they're all coming out of Fort Hood. I've seen, no kidding, I'm not lying to you. I've seen mm -hmm. them, okay? Because they okay. love to come to Benning all the time. Mm -hmm. and, and when I was out of Benning, that's what I was seeing, coming and going. Yep, you bet. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. All right. Okay. Next one, California City, summer 1971. Debbie Clayton is the eyewitness. This is page 233. And what she describes in the testimony is she was in her house. She had some guests nearby and uh, they heard a boom noise. So they all go outside. This was not a big community. They all knew kind of where this was. So they walked over to this area that was a little bit clear and they saw this mushroom top shaped, dish shaped craft. It was about 10 feet wide, five feet high within five minutes 
the U.S. military arrived. They had multiple trucks, multiple Jeeps. There was a tractor trailer with a crane on there. They set up this lanyard device with cables, and they were right in the middle of, of a retrieval operation. Now, one of the primary eyewitnesses had a camera. He was photographing all of this, and one of these military brass Air Force personnel slammed this guy's camera down, told them to get out of the area immediately, so they were about an eighth mile down the road while they were watching this whole thing going on. Now, I believe, since this is California City, this is not far from Edwards Air Force Base. They probably took it back to Edwards Air Force Base, North Base Complex. That's most likely where this thing ended up. All right. I've that's actually been to California City. There's nothing out You've there. You've been there? Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's You've probably been within a quarter mile where this thing happened. Probably. <laughs> yeah, it's not a huge place, but it, I mean, it's fast in terms of the desert there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's nothing out there, really. All right, so we've got Norton Air Force Base, 1973. The primary eyewitness was an Air Force photographer. This is page 160, case 14. So if anyone wants to follow along, I highly recommend getting Leonard Stringfield's book. It's on Amazon. It's called UFO Crash Retrievals. It can't be missed. And that's what this case talks about here. Now, he was originally based in Hawaii. He got his security clearance upgraded, so he's flown to Hawaii all the way to Norton Air Force Base. This is back in 1973. There he is met with another Air Force photographer. They both get in an Air Force car. They drive an hour from Norton Air Force Base and all of a sudden the car stops and they're lowered down into to an underground facility. That's what we're gonna go on to the next slide here. They get out of this Air Force car. They're told to go into a room, disrobe completely nude and then get on these medical smocks that covers their head, their upper um, nose, their face area. So now they're in these medical white smocks. They go out into this open area and they're met with a crane that has a dish-shaped craft kind of in this uh, lanyard uh, supporting network here. And I want to make absolutely sure that we nail the diameter. He said that this thing was 30 feet in diameter. Now they took a cherry picker and their job was to photograph the interior of this craft that's only 30 feet in diameter. But, and I've got the exact quote here. When he got inside the craft, he said, quote, I could have thrown a football as hard as I could and not hit the other side. Something was going on like a space time continuum, a time warp, something that yeah, makes- I, I have to stop you there, Michael, because this has gotta be underlined. This is something so many contactees talk about and when i interview them they kind of give me this look when i ask them how big was the craft they say well on the outside it was this big but on the inside it's much bigger yeah. i would like, like to interject yeah. yeah go for it go like for it something um inside a craft the uh the craft has the capability of bringing the entire crew inside the craft out of the third dimension and they exist in an a dimensional space that is exactly as you described. It's out of our space and time. And it is according to the size that they're at out in that dimension. Um, they live this way constantly. These are beings that travel interdimensionally and they're used to being comfortable that way. Um, I, on, on craft, uh, would go through that. I was trained to go all the way up to the fifth dimension, but I, I've, personally didn't like it. I was uncomfortable with it. So they only kept me between the third and the fourth or full in the fourth. 
dimension in the spaces that I was inside the craft. Um, you have no idea how that can mess with your brains when you're first learning to deal with that because you're literally walking a football field inside 30 feet, which means like, imagine you're in your house, you got a 30 foot house, little house. Okay. And you're in an un outer dimensional space in it. You're not there. You're walking all the way dimensionally within that craft's other craft because they mirror each other interdimensionally. I don't know how they do it, but they do it. And you're literally out of space and time as you know it, outside of dimensional space. All craft have two fields, energy fields around them. They have an inner field and an outer field. The inner field protects the outside of the physical craft. And then the other field outside of that protects them interdimensionally outside the craft. And they can watch you. They can do all kinds of weird things. They see everything that's going on. They uh, travel in seconds clean across the universe. And that is their normal state of being, literally. And, yeah, and this might be no. one of the reasons that's responsible for the weird time distortions. Because I know there's some crash retrieval cases where people have gone inside to work or inspect the craft and come out. And the time difference was not the same. They were in there for like 10 minutes to come out and like an hour has passed. I forget which way it went, but the time was flowing differently inside the craft. Time always mm -hmm. precedes you as further along than you are when you come back. You're always behind it. If you're wearing a Timex and it's actually going to work with something digital, you're way back at the time where you come back, way back. Time wow. goes faster or slower. I don't know how to explain that, but you're, you're back of it, not in front of it. Sorry, Michael, I didn't mean to interrupt, but this is oh, so that's interesting. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. I, I knew you would know of other cases where this happened. I knew you would, Preston. <laughs> yep. yep. He's got, what, 100 of them? Yeah. Literally. Oh, I mean, this is far more common than people realize. Yeah. Uh -huh. So on the upper uh, detailed view that Ruby's drawn here, you can see that these two photographers, the Air Force photographers, they are charged with for, uh, taking photographs of the interior of the craft. So all these buttons and switches and dials and levers and display screens and panels, that's what their job was. Now, when this was all done, they went into another room and they were told to photograph an autopsy of at least three ET beings. And uh, I'm gonna take you inside this facility now. And we've, we've seen this craft like in a netting, this is 30 feet in diameter. And here we've got the uh, Air Force photographers taking photographs. And this is by my good friend, Joseph Wraith. And now I'm going to do a blow up. Gives you an idea of what it may have looked like. And next thing is we want to take you inside the craft of what it may have looked like when this photographer was there. And this is what we came up with. Now you could throw a football as hard as you want it and you'd never hit the other side. This may be <laughs> what it looks like. so amazing inside. to see. <laughs> I mean, it's just Can I ask you a question? Did he describe... Did he describe that um, inside the netting that it was in, did it look like the craft was actually floating independent of the net? Like the net no, might have been holding it, holding it or was uh, it weighted? Not that he described. It, it looked like it was just being supported by the netting. Um, okay. He didn't mention anything about it, it being just slightly above the netting. But again, that that's a detailed description. It'd be really nice to know if that's the case. Now that does come up in some cases, I know. People say it is floating, but usually, yeah, if I remember correctly, a lot of almost always are dangling on some cables or propped up somehow. Something, yep, that's right, off off the ground, off the ground. So here's what Joseph came up with to just give 
the autopsy. So again, here we've got the debris, we've got the craft, we've got the bodies all in one facility. So somehow we need to get access to this facility. Now, the next thing I want to discuss here is these high-speed tube shuttle systems that we've heard about for decades now, these deep underground military bases that are connected by these tube shuttle systems. Now, this is LA Times, July 11th, 1972, and it says here, LA to New York in half an hour, 10,000 mile an hour tunnel train plan developed. This is LA Times. Wow. So if you go to the detailed drawing here, you can see that what they've done is they've they've created these tubes and then they're sucking out all the air with a vacuum. They've got vacuum pumps, they've got emergency bumpers, they've got lateral coils. They describe in this article how this craft actually works. So the next question is, how do we prove any of this is real? And how do we prove that it's been going on for decades? Uh, so then I ran across this document, Project RAN, Proceedings of the Second Protective Construction Symposium, Deep Underground Construction, March 24th, 25th, 26th, 1959, by the RAND Corporation. This is 1959 we're talking about here. Here's what they say. Just as airplanes, ships, and automobiles have given man mastery of the surface of the earth, tunnel boring machines and shaft sinkers will give him access to the subterranean world. It is our aim to provide machines which will supply the ever-increasing demand in mining and construction of underground facilities. So what this is telling us, that in their own documents from 1959, they're, they're already doing this. They're already building these deep underground military bases with connecting tunnels from one base to the other. It's already a done deal. It's already been done. What have they been doing since 1959 or how many others have they built? Who knows? Could be in the hundreds by now, according to their own documents. Yeah, they're everywhere. I want to ask you a question. Have you been to Disney World in Florida? Not not recently, no. <laughs> um, Disney World has an underground facility because many stories down, and they have tubes in there. And the reason that I know this is that my father was an architect, and he worked on them. Hmm, right? Interesting. I, I wouldn't doubt it. I cannot disclose what else he did. But Disney World was one of them, and he had an astronaut working with him. So just saying. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I know so there are cases at Norton Air Force Base. It's not yeah. just that one. It's been implicated several times. Yeah. So are you, Dolly, are you referring to Gordon Cooper? Yes, I am. <laughs> okay. Most certainly. Good. We're on the same page. Yes. Um, actionable item here. Senators and congressmen with the appropriate security clearances should locate this facility, find out what is being stored there, and what other underground installations this may be connected to. That's what the senators need to be doing here. All right, next one. Need to give credit to Dr. Greer for pulling this one out of the archives. U.S. Marine Corps diver off the coast of Okinawa in 1991. So think about this. This is at 1.5 miles depth, so it's way down there. So this Marine, he was one of these, he was one in one of these DSRVs. So they're at 1.5 mile depth. And when they get there, they see a triangular shaped craft embedded in the sediment at 1.5 miles down. Hmm. And he said that it had hieroglyphic writing on the one of the walls of the craft itself. They eventually did bring it up. And I mean, we're talking way down here. 
just from the amount of sediment that was piled up on the embedded side, they estimate that this thing had been there for at least 40 to 50 years. That's how long this thing has been. So we took everything from the report of the uh, Marine and then Rudy's drawing and came up with this one. Uh, this gives you an idea of what this thing may have looked like. So we've got multiple cases that some of these craft, whether they're triangular, they're rectangular, they're circular, some of them have these hieroglyphic writing wrapped around the outer outside wall or outer circumference of the craft itself. So I'm sure that there is a library of all of these symbols and they have teams from all around the world, a transnational team trying to interpret what these symbols mean from all around the world. It's, it's gotta be a united effort for sure. What, uh, what year was that brought up? This was brought up, this is 1991 off the coast of Okinawa. Okay, all right. Yep. Yep. Next one, McClellan Air Force Base, California, oh. 1973. This is via Chris Kofi, test pilot Ellison Onizuka, page 153, case three. So this has to do with a test pilot. His name was Ellison Onizuka, and he goes into a briefing room at McClellan Air Force Base, 1973. There are about 12 other pilots with him, and I'm just going to go forward here. This is what he looks like. Uh, we know who this is, and I know both of you know who this is, and I know that anyone listening on this podcast probably knows who this is as, as well. So they go into this briefing room. The lights go down. There's kind of a general in the background. He's standing next to a projector. He turns on the projector, and on this forward wall, they see this film where there's two ET bodies on slabs in an autopsy. And so he Ellison Unizuka is thinking to himself, oh my God, I can't believe what I'm seeing here. So about five minutes later, the movie ends. There's no debrief. The lights go back on and they're all dismissed. And he's thinking, what, what did I just see here? I mean, I, I can't believe this. Now, going back to who this gentleman was, and I'm going to just break in here very briefly. This came from Open Minds. Uh, and this is a uh, witness says that top secret UFO library existed at McClellan Air Force Base. David Armstrong claims his aunt used to work for a top secret UFO records library at McClellan Air Force Base. This is near Sacramento. In his 20s, Armstrong went to visit her and knowing he had an interest in the subject, Armstrong says his aunt let him take a look at the files. So there was a library, a classified UFO library at McClellan Air Force Base at one time. So they probably had gun camera footage. They probably had uh, black and white glossy photographs, eight by 10 color photographs as well. Now, getting back to the story here, Ellison Oniz Onizuka happened to be a Challenger astronaut. And just before Ellison Onizuka was going to go public with Leonard Stringfield, like two weeks prior to, he was killed in the Challenger accident on January 28th, 1986. So we were this close to getting his testimony. Now I tracked down his widow. I sent her a copy of the report and Rudy's drawing. I never got a response. So I don't know if she didn't want to return my letter or she was never briefed about it by her husband. It could be either one. But the bottom line is that at one time there was a a library at McClellan Air Force Base that had this material. That's what we need to get access to. 
All right, next one. Hold on a second, Michael. Before we go go further, we do need to take a quick station ID break. No problem. At some point, I would like to bring up some questions from the audience, but we'll keep going for now. But yeah, thank you everyone for joining us on The Lightgate, episode 31. I'm your host, Preston Dennett. My lovely co-host is Dolly Safran. Our guest tonight is Michael Schratt, researcher, author, lecturer, specialist on UFO crash retrievals and so much more. And you are listening. We are streaming live on United Public Radio Network 107.7 FM in the beautiful city of New Orleans. Also the UFO Paranormal Radio Network 105.3 FM. We're also on several other platforms, including Facebook, YouTube, and Roku. So huge shout out to all of those people there. We truly appreciate you. And yeah, Michael, this is amazing. You know, what's amazing to me about these crash retrievals real quick (laughs) is that this is the best evidence we have. This is hands down, conclusive proof, game's over, and yet we can't get to it. I know. Frustrating. It's the best evidence, and yet it's all relying on anecdotal testimony, pretty much. Yeah, it, it is the best information we have. Now, what I've tried to do here in this presentation is provide you with military witnesses who had firsthand dealings with this technology. So we've got air traffic controllers, we've got test pilots, we've got engineers, we've got people who worked in the military at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and Navy personnel, Marines. So these are our credible military witnesses that put them on another another level of just, you know, beyond just someone who had a a CE-1 encounter. These are our credible pilots. That's that's the, the, the level of caliber of these witnesses is it boils down to, are these people lying to us or not? I tend to trust Ellison Unizuka. I don't think he would be lying to us. <laughs> I really don't. I hate you know? to be conspiratorially yeah. minded, but I hope that Challenger accident was just an accident. Man, oh, man. Those I'm sitting here sick to my stomach over it, and I'm not going to talk about it publicly. I want to talk to you privately after the show for a few minutes about it. This is bad. Okay? This is no, bad. The Challenger it. has always beaten me up, and... And now I got another reason we just took another one off. So not not to go too much on a tangent here, but you know I have a, a personal thing with Challenger too because I, I was into aerospace my entire life and I always will be. So I know exactly when this happened, uh, where I was, and everybody else does too. But one thing we want to point out is that when the Challenger exploded, uh, they did not immediately die. Okay, they no, were no, they did not multiple G's, but they didn't die. And we know that because when the bodies were recovered uh, back in February, uh, February, March timeframe, there were at least two oxygen packs that were turned on that could be only turned on manually. So we know that at least two astronauts were still conscious after the explosion. Probably all of them lived through the uh, ET tank exploding. And so they were aware of the ocean rushing up onto the windshield of the Challenger. So when they hit, uh, it was equivalent to about 180 to 200 Gs. They were ripped out of their uh, seat mounts, slammed forward to the instrument panel, and that's how they um, were killed. And then they started later. But the bottom line here is that NASA had previously identified burn throughs on the rings on other 
shuttle mission. So they knew about this. And when Morton Thiokol brought this up to NASA upper management, they were overruled by NASA upper management. Thank you. Absolutely. That's my biggest beef right there. Because the manufacturer of those O-rings is in Sweden. It's Rockwell. Okay. And they even stated, do not go. You got a temperature range and that's it. Do not go. We will not Mm -hmm. sanction it. Do not go. They were told multiple times that morning, no go, no go, no go. And they did it anyway. And I know people, trust me, I know people. And it it burns me up. It burns me up because it was a deliberate act for them to do that. Deliberate. And not saying it out loud. No. That's what. The gentleman, uh, basically, Roger Bojali of Morton Thiokol, he was on a, a conference call with upper management, and, he, and his exact words were, this, this is going to be the, uh, the night of the 27th going into the morning of the 28th. There was this um, emergency meeting, and his exact words to NASA upper management was, quote, if you launch tomorrow, you will regret the result, and this is what happened. So the, the big point I'm making here is we've already talked about Eddie Laxon case from March 22nd, 1966, where there was a, a strange craft that was parked in the middle of the road. There was a man next to it. He crawled up a ladder. There was a high-pitched drilling noise, and this thing took off, and it had markings on the side of it written in letters vertically that said TL4768. So the point I'm making here is we already had the technology back in 1966 that you know allowed us to go exoatmospheric with no solid rocket boosters no liquid rockets and we made rocketry obsolete by at least october 1954. so why did we murder seven astronauts when we already had this technology that's the point that's right okay we're gonna move on we're gonna move on Wright Patterson Air Force Base, 1974, UFO crash retrievals, page 327. So if you want to get more details, it's on page 327. So what we're looking at here is there was a dinner party engagement, and the woman off to the left, her boss, she was a new hire. She had two weeks left, so she went to this dinner engagement. Her boss was there at the same time, and he could see that she was getting beat up over a discussion about UFOs. And so he kind of came into the rescue and he turned to her and he said, uh, you want to see the uh, proof? And she said, now? He said, yeah, now. So he, he brings her in, in his car. They drive from the dinner party to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and he had the correct security clearance and he had the correct key card entry to go through a magnetic strip door where that allowed him to walk down this long corridor or to another key card entry. So he put his magnetic card into there. It opened up another door. They go into an underground mausoleum or, you know, it's it's a vault where they have these bodies. So he he pulls open up this file and on, on a, a gurney that's on a ch- chassis roller rolls out and partially covered in a body bag as an ET He's about four feet tall, oversized head, oversized eyes, slit for a mouth. She is absolutely shocked at what she's seeing. She touched the body. It absolutely destroyed her thinking process about what she knew about the world. It shattered her reality. You can imagine the drive home that day when he brought her home. Now, when the two weeks was up and she reported to work on that Monday morning, 
the person who let her in the door and, and she said, okay, I'm here for my first day at work. And she was told that her boss uh, died and there was no mention of him in the obituary. So this guy disappeared off the radar screen. Like he, he didn't even exist. So yeah. who knows what happened, but who she did that? see the body and it yeah. shocked her reality. Who drew that picture? Oh, uh, this is drawn by Rudy, Rudy Gardea. And he took a full description from her because he did really, This is really the best well. we can come up with from page 327. That's really close. Very, very, very close. Close to exactly how they are. A lot of people think they have nostrils that are forward facing. They do not. Their noses uh, have a, 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 you know, a curve to them and they have lower facing nostrils, not facing out. And that's depicting that beautifully. It's great. And they yeah. have slits for mouse. Did, did she look at its teeth? Did she mention it I at all? I didn't mention that in the report. Okay. It didn't matter. Because that's a real gray. That is not an AI. You're you're this is a full-on mid-sized gray. Wow. Real. Yep. Okay. All right, next one. So gotta give credit to Noe and Ruben for this one. This is the uh, Koyama incident, UFO crash near Presidio, Texas. Uh, everything is within the book. So if you want to get more details within the book, it's it's all there, but I want to give them credit. So yeah, what happened was actually on the show prior, so uh -huh. okay, good, good, good. We did talk a little bit about this. Yep. So this craft is at 75,000 feet. It's being tracked at 2,530 miles an hour, heading northbound. Cessna 172 took off from Texas. He's heading southbound. The dish-shaped craft drops down to the level of the altitude of the Cessna 172, and there was a mid-air collision, and the debris rained down on the desert floor. And I've got the depiction here on the map. It's a little bit hard to see, but on the lower left, you can see Koyame. That's where this mid-air collision took place. And while all this is going on, the elements of the intelligence community are listening to the radio chatter of the Mexican military in this retrieval operation. So the National Security Agency is listening in. The Central Intelligence Agency is listening in. And what happens here is once the Mexican military loads this craft on an 18-wheeler tractor-trailer low boy, they start going down this unimproved road. And the next thing that happens, all of a sudden, boom, the convoy stops. And uh, we see that there's people on the drivers that are slumped over on the steering wheel. There's people laying on the ground. They're all dead. There were people that were half in and half out of the vehicle. Others were laid out on the ground, but they were all dead. So we believe that there was a chemical agent that was associated with this crash retrieval. One of our birds, a CIA asset, did a low pass over the scene. They saw all this and they brought in, I'm going to talk about the helicopters here. They brought in at least three UH-1 helicopters and then a CH-53 Sea Stallion that came in and retrieved the craft itself. And they brought it back to uh, CDC headquarters in Atlanta, Georgia. This thing was 16 feet in diameter, five feet tall. There was a, a a dent mark on one side of the craft itself. So what we want to do now is we're going to take everything that Ruben had talked about in the book in conjunction with Rudy's drawing and go to the full color illustration that I want. I'm going to go to next here. But just as a review, we've got the three UH-1 helicopters, the CH-53 Sea Stallion, all go to CDC headquarters in Atlanta, Georgia. And this is the full color illustration showing you 
this retrieval operation. So some of our deepest, darkest secrets within the United States government is when we go in and steal out from under the noses of another government these assets. That's our deepest, darkest secrets. They don't want to talk about these. These have to remain absolutely classified. Here's a question from Robert Allen Yaffe regarding this incident. Do we have any idea what caused this particular crash? Well, there was a mid-air collision between the 172 yeah. and the craft itself. Yeah, and yeah. it probably, I'm going to tell you something. It probably hit, in the craft, there's a panel. There's always a panel inside. And the indwelling entity that runs these crafts are in that panel. It's called the, they call it the heart, okay? And if it's mm -hmm. smashed into that, it neutralized it instantly and it the fluid that runs through this thing it's not a hydraulic it's almost like veins you know it has its own vascular system inside would have killed every human being that came near it so that's exactly what i'm thinking that's exactly what happened it killed it smashed the entity it, it broke it it annihilated it and it went down so it's the radiation that killed the soldiers it, it, no it's the it's the it's a I wouldn't even call it, a, it's gaseous, but it's it's fluids that become gaseous in our atmosphere. And if you're anywhere near, it'll kill you dead. It's, wow. You can't be near it. It's it's otherworldly is what it is. And that's why they all died. That craft was right. not okay to be moved. They should never have done it like that. They should never have picked it up. I'm pretty sure the government's learned lessons from that, not to move a craft right away because that can happen, you know? Wow. So... Thanks, Dolly, for your input on that. That's good to hear. Glad you we have some information on that. All right, so here's the 65-degree top view looking down on the scene. So you can see all the bodies of the Mexican soldiers. Uh, most of them are outside the craft laying on the ground, and now we've got the sea stallion heading over to CDC headquarters. So, you know, it'd be great if we could get some more information uh, where this craft is now, what happened to the bodies, what they did discover, were they able to open it up and get inside? All these questions that need to be addressed. And this has been going on for decades. They've been recovering these things since at least 1933 that we know yeah. of. These are just the ones uh, we know about. Just the tip of the iceberg. Just, just the ones we know of, right. Okay, Fort Dix, McGuire Air Force Base, New Jersey, January 18th, 1978. So the primary eyewitness was a sergeant in the Air Force Security Police, and this is page 131 of the book. All right, so now, and this has been confirmed by George Filer because he was here the morning of, he heard about all this. He knew about the UFO sightings that occurred the morning prior to. So we've got kind of like secondary confirmation from George Filer on this. This is back in 1978. So what happens here is <clears throat> there was an ET that was discovered along the fence line of this facility. And this police officer who was an MP was doing his rounds around the security chain link fence of this facility. When he got to the section here, approximate area of incident with Fort Dix MP, X marks the spot, that's where this happened. This is at night. He saw something come out of the darkness. So this MP slammed on the brakes, he got out of the vehicle, he pulled out a 45 caliber pistol and he shot whatever this was. It climbed over the fence and died on the McGuire Air Force Base old end of the runway. And that's where this actually begins here. I'm gonna take you to the photograph of Brody Road that follows the perimeter. That's 
where we believe this actually took place. And so the next thing that happened is, and that we're going to go to the drawing now, once this ET was shot and climbed over and perished on the other side, they built up a wooden crate kind of on this pedestal. They put the ET body in the wooden crate. Then they put this into a uh, metal container. They sprayed it with a preservation type fluid. They loaded that into the F end of a C-141 Starlifter and flew it to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. So here is another report of all roads leading to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. But I'm sure by now that they have diversified their portfolio. They have moved these assets from one location to the other. They've got these at multiple locations. We heard it firsthand from uh, Marion Black Mac Magruder that not everything is stationed at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. They are in underground cold storage facilities at Eglin Air Force Base. We'll talk about that later. But just want to give you an idea that this is what we could be dealing with here. George Filer can talk about this because he was there. So he knows a, a good portion of this story here. This is the uh, C-141 type aircraft that they used to bring the body back to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. All right, next one, Marina Popovich. Page 245, Soviet Air Force Colonel, Engineer, Decorated Test Pilot. We need to give women more credit in this field. We don't hear about that much, but you know our, our women researchers, our uh, test pilots, engineers, they need to get more credit because uh, they de deserve a lot more praise uh, for coming forward. So what she talked about, and this is on page 245, and it's been confirmed by this gentleman right here. Major General Igor Maltsev, Commander-in-Chief of the Soviet Air Defense Troops. What he described in this report is a very interesting encounter, an attempted intercept by two MiG-23s that were over Moscow. This is back in 1990, March 21st. They were trying to intercept a 650-foot diameter dish-shaped craft. Mm. This thing is massive. I mean, can you imagine 650 feet? with these tiny MiG-23s trying to intercept this thing. But what I want to do is uh, go to the newspaper clipping here. Very interesting. Miami Herald, July 8th, 1990. I'm not going to read all of this. Okay. <laughs> the Soviets more serious about sightings. Yeah. And just read this part here. It says, Maltsev also reported that jet fighters were scrambled and the pilots described a disc from 100 to 200 meters in diameter, flying at speeds two to three times faster than their aircraft, Hewan is said. So that's Antonio. The general concluded that the UFO had somehow, and I love the wording here, come to terms with gravity and that it didn't <laughs> seem to appear to be a terrestrial machine. <laughs> so <laughs> what do they mean by come to terms with gravity? <laughs> wow, isn't that interesting? So here we have a case uh, confirmed by uh, Soviet military generals talking about this. I don't think this gentleman is lying, especially when we have Marina Popovich coming forward talking about this. Yeah, I All got right, to hear speak once at the LA MUFON. She came and spoke. An amazing ah, lady. Yeah. Okay, great. Excellent, excellent. <laughs> this case is during Vietnam. This is 1972 in Cambodia, high-ranking uh, Army officer, this is page 221-223. So this give you a sight picture of Vietnam. And we've got a whole group of Army personnel 
that comes across a bizarre scene. I mean, this is another one of these controversial cases. I'm including it here because it's part of the narrative. It's part of the whole cross-section of the storyline here. So when they get to the facility here of, of the location of where this came, this is Cambodia here during Vietnam. This is the drawing that came with the report. It was 50 feet in diameter, highly polished chrome metallic exterior. It had four pogo landing gear legs. And when this group of uh, army personnel came across this, this is what they saw. This thing was like mirror finish on the, on the end, edge of it. There was an entryway hatch door that opened up. Now, there was a firefight between these ETs and our uh, army personnel. There was mm -hmm. one casualty. There were multiple ET casualties. And this is where it gets kind of macabre and dark. Okay, but I'm covering it because it's part of the whole story here. These ET bodies were rushing, repeat, rushing to get inside this craft. But before they could get inside, what they were doing is they were loading human body parts into plastic bins and then moving the bins into this craft, closing the entryway door hatch, and then this thing took off. This thing is 50 feet in diameter. It's a perfect sphere. It's like a beach ball, but chrome polyp, like a, a ball bearing. And that's what this gentleman describing. Now, I'm questioning whether or not these were real ETs. We have reason to believe that these could be PLFs, program life forms that were created. That's another discussion for another time, but this is what our army personnel are talking about. So we took everything from the report and the Leonard Stringfield case report and this drawing, and then Joel Payne came up with this illustration. It also had an insignia that was almost identical to what uh, Lonnie Zamora had seen back at Socorro, New Mexico. So we've got another point here about something going on. But this is what this army personnel is describing. They're loading up human body parts in a bin, trying to get it inside. Who knows what was going on here? And there was at least one human casualty. They did take out a number of these humanoid-looking ET beings. A very gruesome scene, to say the least. Um, now, what other evidence do we have that something unusual was going on? Well, if you look at the auto binder reports, here is September 9th, 1968, Dung Ha, Vietnam, a helicopter crew of the U.S. knew it was no Viet Cong craft that made fantastic maneuvers through the sky for 20 minutes, but was a genuine UFO. George D. Fawcett was the reference. So we've got multiple reports of UFO sightings during Vietnam. And then, you know, these other locations, too. Uh, Vietnam, for sure. Desert Storm, for sure. World War II, Korea. There's always been UFO sightings associated with wartime operations. Here's the full-color rendering that was from my good friend, Tom Bogan. We'll continue on here. Next one. Great Lakes Naval Training Center, 1973. Primary eyewitness was a gunnery school instructor and this is page 89, case A7 in the book. Now, he was told to deliver a very important letter to the commanding officer within this facility. So he's met by these two very strong Marine-type muscular guys. They go down this hallway. They make a left-hand turn that leads them into this large open part of this Quonset-style hangar. And when he gets inside, 
he sees this craft. It's a teardrop-shaped craft, 30 feet long, 12 feet high. It has what looks like a ridge running along the side of it. I believe it actually rose from the leading edge all the way up top and then went down to the trailing edge, which was much sharper than the bulky uh, kind of rounded forward section. Now, there was a blue coronal discharge all around the leading edge of this craft, and this thing was propped up on a wooden pedestal that was two feet tall off the ground here. Here's my SolidWorks rendering of what this thing might look like. Now, I want to take you to the drawing of what this thing looked like. This is what it probably looked like according to this uh, military personnel here. So he delivers this letter, he makes an about face, takes one good look at this thing and then departs. But this whole thing was propped up on this wooden pedestal. And what's interesting in, as we go through this case here, I'm gonna provide a little bit more information. Now, two weeks earlier, before this even happened, the same primary eyewitness was in a bar and he talked to a sailor who was on a missile destroyer that was in San Diego. And he said that uh, in June of 1973, this gentleman was on this missile destroyer and it shot down a, a craft that was identical to what our primary witness described. So we had secondary independent confirmation that this thing actually did exist. And we'll go to the next one here. Now, how do you think, Preston, that they moved this thing and got it off the, the seabed? Do you have any idea? <laughs> I don't. I wouldn't venture to guess. That's, that's where our good friend Howard Hughes comes in. Right. What we're looking at here is the Glomar Explorer. Right. And this is to take minerals off the seabed. And this massive Glomar Explorer. The CIA contracted a very specific defense contractor to build something called Clementine. This is Operation Project Jennifer. And it was to remove a Russian submarine from the uh, seabed off the coast of Hawaii. Right. Now, while all this is going on, huh, that wasn't the only thing that the Glomar Explorer retrieved from the bottom of the ocean. It took this thing off too, and probably other USOs off the bottom of the ocean. Hmm. How CIA divers retrieve Russian secrets. San Francisco Examiner, March 19, 1975. A matter of risk, incredible inside story of the CIA's Hughes Glomar Explorer mission to raise a Russian submarine. So during 1973 to 1974, a, a Russian submarine was removed from the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. However, that's not all that was recovered. So in this cover of the book, you can see that there's this claw-like device that came right. down. It grabbed this submarine. Now, while it was going up, a couple of the arms broke off and part of the submarine broke off as well. So they didn't get all of it, but they did get some of it. And they recovered uh, some of these launch codes and a lot of classified information that to this day has not been declassified. This is a a great story, but it's not really well known. The I, I have a question about that. Is that the one that had the nuke? Yeah, it had some nukes on board. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's exactly correct. You know about it. Yep. This is a huge story, but it's it's yeah. kind of unknown because it's been a while now. But the point being that in this book, the gentleman talks about how they use this Glomar Explorer Clementine device to bring up this USO craft that they shot down. 
Uh, so here we have Howard Hughes. He would have known about this operation. Right. Uh, so yeah. we got Howard Hughes being involved now. Okay. Now, Great Falls Tribune, September 28th, 2010. Ex-Air Force officer discusses UFO sightings. This is Robert Salas, who's in this photograph. And we want to talk about these incursions in the 1960s at uh, Malmstrom Air Force Base. Mm, I know about this. Yeah. Ten of these ICBMs were brought offline. There were a minimum of ten. And so we've got Robert Salas, who is in the uh, launch control room. He's, you know, 70, 80 feet underground. And he hears that on top side, there is a UFO on the other side of the chain link fence near the missile silo. They're watching all this going on. And all of a sudden, one by one, all these missile silos go offline. Uh, it's incredible. So we've got independent confirmation from multiple Air Force missileers, they're called them. They're called. And we're going to go to the drawing. This is what it may have looked like if they were outside. And we've got the personnel uh, on the cutaway detail view on the bottom and left-hand right side of this view here. Uh, and this is going on. This is this went on here in America, and it also went on in the Soviet Union as well. So we had unlock yeah. uh, one of the launch doors, unlock and open all the way up, and then close on its own. In other words, it shocked everybody. Now, I don't know if it opened the doors, but I do know that Boeing engineers came in after this actually took place. Yeah. And they went through the electrical systems with a fine-tooth comb, and they could find nothing no, wrong with these right. things. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure it unlocked one of the missile uh, headers, okay? You know, the ones that slide up. Open yeah, I know exactly off. what you're talking about. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. it opened one of them and then shut it in front of them. So just so you know. There you go. Well, I mean, now we're talking something completely, uh, yeah, that, that would be well, There's to more see. to this than you've been told is what I'm trying to tell you. There was yep. a lot going on that day, a lot. Okay. For sure, for yeah. sure. Okay, uh, look, next one here, reference number 16. This is uh, sources of pathologists at the Cleveland Clinic via Dr. Stanley Tightco, 1952 to 1953 from Kingman. That's the question here. So. This is reference number 16, and uh, something was going on at Walter Reed Hospital. Absolutely. I've got multiple reports that something was going on in the 1950s about UFO crash retrievals, bodies being sent there, autopsies going on, photographs, medical reports. And so what I want to do now is I want to go through the bullet items according to the medical doctors and the pathologists who were on these autopsy teams and performed the autopsies. This is the report of what they're telling us that these beings look like when they've been retrieved and brought back to the hospitals. So we've got three and a half to four and a half feet tall, two round, round or almond sunken in eyes without pupils, heavy brow ridge, large hairless head by human standards, no earlobes, no definitive nose, small slit for a mouth. We've talked about that multiple times. Very thin neck, small torso, wearing metallic flexible garment. Arms described as long and thin, reaching down to the knees. Hands having four fingers without a thumb. Short and thin legs, no toes. Skin color beige, tan, brown, tan, pinkish, or gray. So if you took all of this description from the pathologist report and the witnesses and the medical personnel, 
what would you come up with? So I told Rudy, I go, Rudy, give me a drawing based on the testimony of not just hearsay, but people who were on these autopsies and described all of the features that we just talked about. And this is what he came up with. I believe this to be the most accurate drawing of the ETs that we've got that are based upon these pathologists and doctor reports. So you've got these four-fingered hands. You've got some cases long uh, fingernails. You've got webbing between the fingers and then what looks like suction cups or almost like bubbles on the inside of the index finger sections here. Now they're, they're prosthesis. Go they ahead. Prosthesis. They were prosthesis. They're the mid-sized grays. And those are, are uh, you can't see their pupils because they're wearing lenses. And yes. they fit them so well, they, you know, to peel it off, then you would see the lens. And they don't tell you the truth about that. And, uh, yeah, they have webbed fingers. And the no-toes is normal for them. Some of them have toes, some of them don't, but only four fingers. And they wear prosthesis because without a thumb, you're you're not as good at picking things up or doing things on this planet. And that's why they wear them. So, yep. Okay, good. You got it right. Yeah. Good to hear that, Dolly. All right, next one. St. Peter Basilica, the Vatican. There's something called the White Book. It's talked about on page 201. So we've also we've all heard about this uh, library at the Vatican, this secret underground library, and if we could get access to it. So in this report, it talks about something called the White Book, that is mankind's interaction with ETs over the last two to 2,500, 2,000 to 2,500 years. And then it says that they have re recovered at least one ET craft is stored at the Vatican Library. So I want to take you inside the Vatican Library now. And this is what we came up with here. So if you look off to the right, we've got all these manuscripts and documents and scrolls from the Library of Alexandria. We've got uh, Aztec and Mayan uh, treasures. Off to the left, we've got the Egyptian sarcophagus. And then hanging above, we've got this ET craft that they recovered. Now, that's according to the witness within the Leonard Stringfield book. And then we've got an Olmec head in the background here. All right, so what's the bottom line here? The entire body of ET crash retrieval evidence points to a sophisticated multi-decade cover-up, which has concealed ET craft debris and bodies from the general public and members of Congress. These assets have to uh, have been spread out over multiple military installations around the country in an effort to conceal the truth from the public and also to reverse engineer their advanced energy and propulsion systems. With new legislation now in place, previously hesitant top secret witnesses should feel more confident to come forward, thereby preserving an important part of our national history. And right. that's what we need to happen right now. 100%. This needs to happen right now because this is the final curtain call on UFO crash retrievals. If we don't make a management decision now and get some of these dying witnesses to come forward, we're going to lose so much of our national history. It's critical that we do this now. I agree. Absolutely agree. It, it, it will help end also a lot of misinformation that's going around. That, to me, is the bottom line for me. There's more misinformation going through this country and worldwide that is unbelievable. And these witnesses are telling the truth. They are saying things the correct way. And, oh, yep. you know. That's absolutely correct. Now, you, it, I counted 119 crash retrieval cases back in 2013 when I investigated 
Leonard Stringfield 65 three ring binders that were stored at Lunkin Airport in Cincinnati. So there's 119 crash retrieval cases. Can some of them be hoaxes? Absolutely. One, two, three, four, sure. I'm gonna, <laughs> discount, I'm gonna discount three or four, no problem. But you cannot discount military witness after military witness, Marines, engineers, Air Force, test pilots, people who worked at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, people who worked at the university laboratories. You just can't discount all of them as a whole. Right. So, now, I have, I have a really important question. How many of those are military back-engineered crashes versus the real deal? And good question. Good question. I'm interested in that. Uh, personally, I believe that a, a significant majority of what people are reporting as ET UFO craft are, in point of fact, our own deep black programs. Right. But as, we, as we've demonstrated in other presentations, this phenomenon goes back thousands of years. So not right. everything here is right. not everything something is crap, right. but, exactly. but a, a significant majority of what people are reporting, like in modern times, uh, let's say from 1933 onward, there's a large percentage that are our own craft, the triangular craft, the rectangular shaped craft, the craft that have tubes, pipes, and cylinders on the bottom of them certainly yeah. are our own craft. For sure. Right. I'm right. glad you mentioned rectangular. I've been telling Preston for a couple of years now that there's rectangular craft that is back engineered and those yes. are deadly. They're dangerous. If you see one in the sky, don't stay outside, get out of its way, leave because those are, have a military use that is incredible. You know, I believe it. I believe it. Now I want to talk about a couple more cases here, uh, going back to some of these early cases. So this is 1941, Cape Girardeau, Missouri. Primary witness is a man named Reverend William Hoffman. Now, Charlotte Mann plays a role in this here, but it's around uh, 9.30 p.m. And, and uh, Reverend William Hoffman, he gets a knock on the door and there's a police officer there. And the police officer sir, says, Reverend, we believe we've got an aircraft crash and we'd like you to come and investigate. Uh, would you please do that for us? And he gets in the squad car. They go 15 miles across town to the other side of Cape Girardeau. And when they get, you know, it's completely night now. It's it's pushing 10 o'clock here. When they get there, this is what they see. They see a approximately 25-foot diameter dish-shaped craft that came in at a 45-degree angle. There was a hull breach on the side of the craft exposing the interior, showing you the buttons and the switches and dials and the levers. Uh, by this time... You know, originally it was just like farm people who were there first, but now the um, United States military got involved. The police and fire department are there. There's some burning fires in the background. There were three ET bodies recovered at the scene. One was still alive. So the Reverend, he gets up to this one and he gets to it 60 seconds before it passes away. They were all wearing a one-piece tight-fitting blue flight suit. They were three and a half feet tall. They were uh, basically oversized head, oversized eyes that we talked about before. Now, while all this is going on, there are newspaper men with large cameras taking photographs of the debris, the site, the craft, and the bodies. And one of these, now this is according to Charlotte Mann, one of these photographers was taking a photograph and there were two farm personnel that, that hoisted up one of these dead ET corpses under its armpit and outstretched both arms. So there was one gentleman on one side, one on the other. They were both propping up under the armpits 
a dead ET corpse. And this mm. photographer took a photograph of this thing. <laughs> Two weeks later, the photographer from the newspaper showed up to uh, Reverend Hoffman's home and said, Reverend, I've got something I want to give you. He gives him a photograph that he took. And Charlotte Mann, five years ago at the International UFO Congress in Phoenix, she talked about this photograph. This is a sketch of what this thing looked like. She held this photograph. It was aged. Um, it probably had stains on it. It might have a burn mark on it. And it, it's a tragedy because this photograph was given to the hands of a quote-unquote photography analysis expert, and we never saw it again. It disappeared. Mm -hmm. so this is another case where we were this close to getting the evidence, and it slipped right, right from under our hands here. So I took everything that Charlotte mentioned, and we put together a replica of what this photograph may have looked like, and this is what we came up with. Now, keep in mind, this thing would be 80 years old now. It would be, it'd kind of be ripped up. Uh, she did say it had uh, kind of like this scallop edges on the side of it. Those would be aged, but this is perhaps what this photograph may have looked like. Man, and that man. photograph was lost somewhere in between 1953 to 1955, according to Charlotte Mann. And she talked about this. Uh, she held this thing. She saw this in her uh, basically multiple times when it was brought out through the family. Now, what was mentioned by Paul Blake Smith is where in the world would you store a dish-shaped craft back in 1941? Preston, do you have any idea where we would take this thing back in 1941? Right, Patterson. I can't. I don't know. I mean, there's so many air, air bases. I think they're all filled with them, honestly. Okay, so we'd want to take it to the we'd want to take it to the Pentagon, right? Oh, because right. the Air Force didn't exist back in 1941. So we want to take it to the Pentagon. But there's a problem with this theory because the Pentagon didn't exist back, back in 1941. Yeah. According to Paul Blake Smith, it was actually taken to the U.S. Capitol in 1941 oh at an underground vault mm. at the U.S. Capitol in 1941. It could still be there today. Who knows? But according to Paul Blake Smith, that's where this thing was taken. So what I want to do now is I want to take you inside this underground vault at the Capitol, where we could go there today and still see this if it was there, and this is what we might see. You've got these ET bodies in these <laughs> preservation vases. We've got the dish-shaped craft in the background, and then in these crates that are right out of Indiana Jones, we've got the debris and remaining larger portions of the craft itself, which could be here. It could be here today, right now, as we're speaking. Well, it's very possible. Very possible. Now, I know you've got more to, to say, but I want, do want to pop up a few questions. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, I promised that I would. And there are just a couple here that I think uh, are important. Here's one from a witness I interviewed who okay. saw this incredible UFO with pyramidal structures on the bottom in rows. And he's asking, have you ever heard of anything with like pyramidal shapes inset into the bottom of a craft? Hmm, interesting. I have heard of a pyramidal uh, craft with what look like tubes, pipes, and cylinders and lights on the bottom. I don't know if that constitutes pyramidal uh, features on the bottom of the craft, but I have heard of a pyramidal craft with interesting, intricate features on the upper, uh, lower portion of the craft itself. 
All right. And here's a question. Do you think some of these small craft might be drones, meaning not occupied? Oh, Absolutely. They're occupied, but yeah, they're drones. Yeah. I, I definitely believe that a lot of these are uh, unoccupied drones. Some of these things look like they are absolutely antiseptically sterile inside. There's no switches. There's no dials. There's no buzzers. There's no display screens. There's no seats for anything. There's just a central column. Now, there could be beings in there that we don't know because they might be light beings. Who knows? Why would they need a craft if that's the case? But some of these are absolutely unmanned drones, yes. All right. A couple more because I really want to get back to your stuff. And sorry, guys. I know we would like to answer all the questions, but Michael, your stuff is so interesting. <laughs> I think we want to focus on that. But here's a quick question from Robert Allen Yaffe. And I don't know about this. Did Stringfield ever cover the alleged 1936 crash in the German Black Forest? Not that I'm aware of. Not that I'm aware of. He touched on Cape Girardeau just barely, but you know, as you get more into this research, we, we keep on hearing that the date keeps getting pushed back now. So like we're at 47, then we're at 46 at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Now we're talking about 1941. Uh, then there were, there were a couple of things in 1942 at Battle of Los Angeles, and we keep on moving the clock back. We, we just heard about a report from 1933. David Grush talks about that. He recently discussed a, a case in 1933, uh, which was described in not real good detail, but this timeline just keeps on going back. I wonder just how far back in history this goes with the crash of Trevels. Pretty too. far back. Yep. All right. I think yeah. those are the main questions. I know there are some other questions, guys, but I'd really love to get more out of Michael while we still have, because we've only got like 10 15 minutes left. No, no problem. No problem. So I want to bring this to your attention. This is from Ryan Wood. Uh, this is a retype memo from FDR to General George C. Marshall dated February 27, 1942. I'm not going to read all of this, but I do want to highlight a couple things here. Just the upper part. It says, I have considered the disposition of the material in possession of the army that may be of great significance toward the development of a super weapon of war. I disagree with the argument that such information should be shared with our ally, the Soviet Union. Consultation with Dr. Bush and other scientists on the issue of finding practical uses for the atomic secrets learned from study of celestial devices precludes any further discussion, and I therefore authorize Dr. Bush to proceed with the project without further delay. So we don't even have to go any further. Think about the wording here that's going on. I'm going to just kind of rehash this thing here. First of all, it says material in possession of the army. Okay, so this is around the exact same timeline as the Battle of Los Angeles. So they're talking about material in possession of the army. That's the first thing. Then they talk about the development of a super weapon of war. So what you can see they're doing here is they're taking these assets that they've recently discovered and they're trying to figure out the propulsion system so that they can make it into and exploit a weapon system. Then it goes on here. It says that uh, other scientists, and it says here, the atomic secrets. So now we're talking about atomic secrets. So that's the third point here. The final point here, and, and listen to the wording, the study of celestial devices. Who in the world uses that terminology? <laughs> well, devices, nobody. That tells you right there that there's something to this. And what celestial devices 
did they recover in 1942? We didn't have any s satellites up um, that. I want to bring this up because you don't know about it, obviously, and I'm going to bring it up because I okay. have a witness. Okay. okay. Um, in 1941, in New York uh, State, Upper New York State, and I can't tell you the exact location because I'm um, not sure, uh, but a CIA agent was on duty up there, and his family, he was called uh, during a holiday, and he took his niece with him to this site. And yep. what they had on site was a uh, crashed UFO that was cloaked. And she was wandering around, and she walked into it and disappeared in broad daylight in front of everybody there. This is a CIA agent who has retold this to family, okay? Uh, she was gone most of the day. They couldn't find her. She walked back into full sight in front of God and everybody on that day. Uh, she was taken home and uh, told stringently that, you know, they debriefed her. They were trying to figure out what they had happened. She was only four and a half or five years old. This is in 1941 in New York. Now, I want to bring, I bring this up to you because I can put you in touch with these people, first of all. Second of all, if this happened in 1941 in Upper State, New York, and the military knew about it, CIA knew about it, okay, in 1941, hmm. newly created CIA. Well, CIA wasn't formed until 1947. Right. But, yeah. If, yeah, but they had already working... Like he, he's a CIA agent now, but he, back then he was a working agent of another sort for the army. This is all, it goes back to 1938, 1936, and just before that. That's how long this has been going on. That's how long our military, our governments have known this. That's the point I want to make here. Y'all need to do, I'm going to put you in touch with these people because it sets a precedent of truth, Okay that y'all aren't operating on yet, apparently, and you need to be, because this is not a joke. This woman grew up, had a family, was terribly psychic and, and an ET contactee as well. And I grew up with her. I know her. She's dead now, but you know what I'm saying? This family knows me. They know my life. They've seen me come and go with ET. She saw me come and go with ET. And when she passed away, it was one of the darkest days of my life, because this was a witness you can't deny, okay? Just can't deny. She came up with a brain tumor out of nowhere and it killed her. Um, this is serious stuff. And this is what I want to relate to you, that there's far more investigating to do. And I don't know how many people know a lot more than I do. And I know they're out there. This is the witnesses. They got to come out. They just have to come out because this has been going well, on. That's why this work is so darn important. And so, you know, Wright-Patterson was built in 1917. It wasn't an Air Force base, quote, but it was a base. It was there in 1917. And a lot of stuff did get taken there early on that you yes. don't know about. Yeah. Okay? So, I mean, this is serious stuff. Not playing. It, yep. it means everything for everybody to just, like, if you have a family member and they were involved in government and they're too afraid to talk to them, it's okay. Come on out. You can't, you know, write something down. Contact date you, Michael, or, you know, somebody else, Preston or... Greer, somebody, you know, because they need to start talking. They need to start yeah, laying this. Out. Some people who are literally on their deathbed in a hospital. Right. <laughs> contacted me. So that's crazy. We we are way beyond pushing the undertaker at this point. This is the final curtain call on disclosure. Absolutely. Yep. I know. I agree one hundred percent. It's gotta happen. And uh, it's happen. just it's gotta to happen. me.
Uh, okay, so in the time remaining, let's rip through what we can here. Okay. So this is uh, July 2nd. Now, there are some who say it was actually July 4th, 1947, leaning more toward that because uh, Bill McDonald has pinned down eyewitnesses that talk about July 4th, 1947. Point being is this is the probably one of the best detailed maps that we have of what, what actually took place. So I'm going to rush through this pretty quickly here. So if you if you go approximately 65 miles northwest of Roswell, you end up with this big dot, the big black dot. That's the debris field. We don't want to start there. We want to start five nautical miles north of the debris field at a place called the Touchdown Site. That's where Lincoln La Paz, 509th Bomb Group member, yep. and also Lewis Rickett, uh, of Lincoln La Paz was a meteorite expert. Lewis Rickett was the 509th bomb group member. What they discovered were two things. Number one, they discovered fused green glass and they discovered a seamless black box that's almost never talked about that to this day, we don't know if they were ever able to open up. We have no idea if they were able, able to open up that black box. So that was north of the, of the debris field. Now at the debris field, we have Timothy D. Proctor, who was seven years old, and Mac Brazel. They discovered a about a 200-foot-long gash in the earth that was 12 feet wide. They discovered three types of debris, which we're going to talk about later. Now, the trajectory of how this thing came down was from northwest to southeast. And the crash site that I've got here, this is about 35 to 40 miles north of Roswell. There were five bodies recovered. One was still alive. Now, just northwest of the crash site is the second body site. This is where they recovered two bodies. So between the second body site and the crash site, we've got five bodies recovered and one was still alive. So that's the site picture of what we're talking about here. Here's what it looks like when you go to where this thing came down. There's very, very, very low rolling hills. It's flat. Um, it's featureless. There's no really big trees or anything. We just have these low shrubbery. This is what it kind of looks like. So when you come upon debris, this is the area that you would be seeing here. So here we have Mac Brazel. We've got Timothy D. Proctor. They come across this debris field. They get, they've got the gouge here. Now the three types of debris that they discovered, number one, debris that was very thin. It looked like a cigarette packet, aluminum foil. It could not be cut, could not be burned, could not be dented with a 16 pound sledgehammer. Debris number two, was the quote-unquote memory metal. This is the type of material that you could scrunch up in your hand, and when you let it go, it would spread out like a liquid mercury and would take about 15 to 20 seconds to fall back down onto the table. Debris number three were multiple small-looking I-beams with hieroglyphic writing on the inside wall that was seen by Jesse Marcel Jr. Okay, so next one, we want to take you to the actual crash site. So now, according to uh, Don Schmidt, the craft was an egg-shaped craft with a dome on top and a hull breach. Now, according to Bill McDonald, it was more of a manta ray-shaped craft with a pointed nose and two inward-canted vertical stabilizers. Uh, that was confirmed by one of his witnesses. Bottom line is, we have the ET body who was the survivor over by this ambulance truck. And then Don Schmidt said that this was probably within 300 feet of a water tank and a windmill. So that's how you gauge where this thing actually took place. Now, there was an 18-wheeler tractor-trailer 
truck that was brought on to bring this craft back to the 509th bomb group, hangar P3, building 84, back at the base. So the question is, how did they hoist it up? The way they did this, according to Don Schmidt, and this isn't talked about either too, is that there was no crane operating at the base at the time. So they had an independent contractor from Roswell go all the way up to the crash site, and they had a crane device with lanyards, and they hoisted that up onto the 18-wheeler tractor trailer lower boy truck. And I'm going to give you the full-color illustration here. shows you how they brought it onto the trailer. Now, next scene is July 8th, 1947. We've got a couple of minutes left here. This is Main Street. There were two paper boys and multiple eyewitnesses saw this massive convoy going down Main Street that you could still go through this uh, route today. Two Jeeps up front, tractor trailer, two Jeeps in back. On this trailer was an egg-shaped craft, 13 feet wide, maybe eight or nine feet tall, had a dome. It was covered by a tarp that led all the way to Hangar P3, Building 84 at 509th Bomb Group. Here's the Roswell Daily Record, July 8th, 1947. And then within 24 hours, they changed their story completely, July 9th, 1947. Here we are inside the facility here. And just off to the left, we've got the six by six troop transport with the debris. We've got the ambulance truck. We've got the child-sized caskets that were identified by mortician Glenn Dennis. In the foreground center, we've got the four ET bodies. One ET body was already flown out via C-54 by Pappy Henderson. Over to the right, we've got the egg-shaped craft with the hull breach. And on the back lower left part of this illustration, we've got the crate that was being built that housed the caskets that had the bodies. Go on to the next slide. Multiple MPs that were uh, charged to guard atomic bomb pit number one, where they lowered the uh, wooden crate. And then we'll go ahead and finish up with the straight flush B-29 by way of a hydraulic lift. They took the uh, bodies in the crate, loaded into the B-29. That B-29 flew directly to 8th Air Force, Fort Worth, Texas, uh, with Roger Raymond. One C-54 flight containing at least one body flew directly to Wright Field, Dayton, Ohio. Pappy Henderson was the pilot. Here's the loading process here. And then this is the autopsy that we believe took place at a rudimentary facility inside the hangar at Roswell. And then the other one took place somewhere after July 9th, 1947 at the Aero Medical Lab at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And then we can talk about Mac McGruder on another time. But anyway, looks like we're getting close to the end here. I'm going to unshare my screen and hopefully we can, uh, I guess, wrap things up here. Yeah, we're going to have to, unfortunately. But Michael, we're going to have to have you back. This is insane. <laughs> and I know you've got other topics you could cover easily, too. So, <laughs> oh, wow. No, we need way we need, we need more time. Oh, my God. So you're going to come back again, right? Sure. We How can about after that. the new year? Okay. I'm going to finish <laughs> this up. Yeah, and, uh, so, oh yeah, my. Michael Schratz, UFO channel is called Blue Room Media. Check Correct. it out, guys. Yes. yes. Okay, is uh, Dark Files. Um, really interesting. So, yeah. So, thank you so much for coming on to the show. No problem. No problem. This after we uh, disconnect, thank you all for joining us on the Light Gate. We will continue this conversation on another date. 
Uh, I would like to let you know that we were coming to you live from the beautiful city of New Orleans at 107.7 FM at, at the United Public Radio Network and the UFO Paranormal Radio Network at 105.3 FM. Uh, we will see you next Monday. Everybody, please have a wonderful time. Talk to you another day. <laughs>